May 12th, 2010, my youngest son, Josh, died from an overdose. Opiates, amphetamines, and benzos were all lethal doses in his system. Um, he had been an addict since about 2007, was in a car accident, went to the hospital, was sent home on Percocet and Xanax for PTSD from a car wreck, and it escalated from there. In our final episode of the season, I sit down with a true hero, Major Patricia Cole, an EMT from Lee County, Kentucky. Patricia lost her son to an accidental opioid overdose. And turning tragedy into triumph, she now dedicates her life to reversing opioid overdoses in people who are hanging on to the edge of their existence. She shares her journey with us from grieving mother to opioid war hero. I'm Patricia Cole. I have worked in Lee County for 13 years. I'm a paramedic there. I'm also deputy director. I'm the mother of four children, three boys, one girl. I have 19 grandchildren. Seven of those are great grandchildren. I'm married to Philip Cole. Philip is also a paramedic, has been a paramedic for 18 years. So that's a little bit about me. So do I understand right, you're a paramedic and your husband's a paramedic? Yes, we're both paramedics. How about those great grandkids? Do they understand what great grandma does? Uh, they do. They absolutely do. They've been to where I work. Uh, we've had them on the ambulance, just letting them look around. So yeah, they're pretty happy. They they always say Nana and Papa save people. So they know what we do. We reached out to you here on Outside Council because uh, we read a report about what you do for a living and some details about why you do it. Would you mm -hmm. tell our audience what you do and why you do it? I'm an ALS provider. I'm a paramedic. I do pretty much in the back of the ambulance what they do in the ER. Um, I intubate. I shock people if their heart's out of rhythm or if their heart has quit and they're in a rhythm that can be shocked. Um, give medications. I treat overdoses. Basically anything that needs life-saving, we're there to do it. You're all too familiar with the opioid epidemic, aren't you? Yes, I am. Would you tell us a little bit about your personal story and your family story? May 12th, 2010, my youngest son, Josh, died from an overdose. Opiates, amphetamines, and benzos were all lethal doses in his system. Um, he had been an addict since about 2007, was in a car accident, went to the hospital, was sent home on Percocet, and Xanax for PTSD from a car wreck, and it escalated from there. So he's one of the millions of Americans who got addicted to prescription opioids from legitimate treatment for legitimate pains. He did. Josh was always outgoing, always very athletic, loved basketball, loved baseball, was always on all-star teams. And he like separated himself from us. When he did come to see us, noticed that he'd lost weight. His appearance had gotten worse. He was always a really nice looking young man, very athletic looking. Started lying to us, lost his job, asking for money. And I knew that wasn't him. That wasn't the child that we had raised. 
I knew something was going on. And then I found out that he was taking drugs at that time. When all of this started in 2007, I wasn't an EMT. That didn't happen until 2009. And I became an EMT at that time. When it started, you didn't yet have the background you do now to know that that was the disease talking, not your son, once those drugs got the grips on. I've always looked at it because I've saw I saw it on TV and everything, and a lot of people called it a disease. Some people didn't. I do. When it messes with the cellular part of the body and within the brain, it becomes a disease. And I've always saw it that way, you know, just from, I mean, I even researched it then, read a lot about it. So when I knew he for sure was taking medications that he was getting legally at the time. It was being prescribed to him by a doctor when his doctor wouldn't give it to him anymore. They sent him to a pain clinic. And I mean, it, 2009, it escalated when he started the pain clinics. I've, I've looked at it a little bit differently. He overdosed in 2010, you mentioned, and did not survive. Prior yes. to that overdose, had he ever overdosed before? Not that I was made aware of. He died in May of 2010, but in late summer of 2009, his wife, because he was married, had three children. He had two little girls and a little boy. His wife had called me and, and said that she had kicked him out, that she couldn't deal with what he was doing anymore and told me where he was. I found him in the backseat of his car in Owingsville, which is about 60 miles from where I live. I put him in my car and took him home with me and got him clean. I did that on my own. I got him clean and he had been clean for probably about seven months before he died. I had never really looked at it the way I did then. He told me one morning after he'd been at my home for about five months, he got up one morning because he wasn't eating real well for the first couple months and then he started eating and I loved to cook for him. So I had fixed him breakfast and we were sitting at the breakfast table and he told me, he said, I can look at myself in the mirror and I look better. My mind is clear, I'm thinking clear, but every day I wake up and I still crave it and I don't know how to get past that. Addiction is physiologically the permanent chemical alteration of the brain's motivational priorities. He couldn't just snap out of addiction by the force of will. Yes. Was he receiving uh, outpatient treatment at the time he relapsed and died? No, he was not. How did you learn that he had overdosed? I was already an EMT at that time. I was at work at Lee County and it was about eight, it was 827 in the morning. I'll never forget that phone call. I had came into shift at eight o'clock and 827 my phone rang and it was my daughter-in-law Sarah and uh, when I answered the phone she was screaming and she kept telling me that he was gone he was gone I knew what had happened but my mind was tell me where he is and I'll talk to him and she kept telling me he's gone he's gone he's gone and I said Sarah where's he gone and she said Trish they found him dead this morning about an hour ago in the back seat of his car. I remember dropping my phone and I could hear somebody screaming and I realized that person screaming was me. One of the ladies at work that was a supervisor 
I was sitting in the floor and she had her arms around me. And when I came to myself, she was holding me and rocking me and telling me it was going to be okay. And that's how I found out. Immediately, I wanted to see him. When I called to try to find out where he was, where they had taken him, he had already been taken to Frankfort, Kentucky, to the medical examiner's office. I saw him two days later laying in a casket. I hoped that he was at the point of recovering. He was back where his, with his wife, he was back with his kids. And I thought that was gonna save him, you know, that it would be okay. The more that I've learned about addiction, it doesn't matter who's at home. It doesn't matter who loves you. It doesn't matter where you're from, where you're going when you have that addiction until you get help for it you're not going to be in recovery it's just a that was just a period of time where he was clean for a moment when they are in recovery if they relapse the risk of overdose is higher because they've lost some of that tolerance they had when they were using regularly Yes, Josh was using Percocet 30s. I mean, I knew a little bit about Percocets, but not like I do now. Percocet 30s is very strong, very powerful. You go to the dentist and if they pull teeth or something, they give you Percocet 5s. Well, he was doing 30s. When you're out there seeing overdoses on a regular basis, are you seeing high numbers of prescription opioids still out there? or really more only counterfeit pills laced with illicit fentanyl and what I'll just call non-pharmaceutical grade opioids. What we're seeing now, it's not so much in the pill form. There is some, but I mean, it's illegal. They're making them. We're seeing more of heroin. We're seeing the heroin laced with fentanyl, the meth laced with fentanyl. And I mean, it's killing them almost instantly. Lee County population, about 7,000. The month of March, we had 27 overdoses and seven of them were DOA. They were gone when we got there and had been using. We had a couple that still had the needles in their arms. Some of them were snorting it. And soon as they had used it, it was just like they just fell over. And it was, when it was mixed in, they were mixing it in water, it was turning blue. It's turning out that it's heroin mixed with fentanyl or meth mixed with fentanyl. Fentanyl's became a big thing. And heroin has to, because it's so easily accessible now, because doctors aren't giving out the prescriptions for the opioids like they once did. Right. Now that we have a generation of people who are addicted to opioids from prescription opioids, but now there is greater scrutiny and restriction in terms of their overprescribing and oversupply. You still have these addicts who are suffering overwhelming withdrawal symptoms. And if they don't get into treatment, they have got to get some other opioid into their body just to try to alleviate those symptoms, at least for a while. Do you see that? You know, I hear people say all these young kids out here getting high and dying. It's not the young kids, it's the mothers and the fathers and the grandparents, you know, it, it's not your teenagers and 20 year olds, it's our 30, 40, 50, 60, even 70 year olds that are overdosing on heroin and fentanyl. The biggest risk for addiction to opioids is exposure, dose and duration, not 
who you are, rich or poor, or anything else. Right, right. It's sad. And it's it's gotten worse in Lee County over the last two years. And, you know, I guess that correlates with COVID and everybody's inside. And I'm assuming that has something to do with it because, I mean, COVID's put a strain on everybody. So, you know, not everybody's turned to drugs, but it's just they have nothing else to do and they're not working and they're depressed. And anybody who knows anything about addicts, they all have a story. They don't just get up one day and decide they're going to be a drug addict. They all have a story, whether it be child abuse or spousal abuse or you know, some traumatic injury that's happened to them. They all have a story and they need to be heard. Well said. And irrespective of what the backstory was, once they get to the place that they're suffering from opioid addiction, they're suffering from a disease of despair. And COVID is a disease of despair. And so one fed the other. Yes. I was talking to somebody earlier today and, uh, She said that she did not believe that drug addiction was a disease. And I said, well, then, you know, type two diabetes, how can that be a disease? You know, that can be prevented by well care maintenance and you can actually reverse it from eating and exercising and you don't have to take medicine, but that's still considered a disease. So how can you not say that? drug addiction is not a disease because it too can be reversed. You still crave it. You know, once an addict, always an addict. Well, once a type two diabetic, always a type two diabetic, you know, it's just in remission. I mean, that's pretty much how you can put it. I want to go back to your transition to being a paramedic for an EMT and the role that Joshua's death from opioids and the other drugs had. Two weeks after Josh passed away, I couldn't sit at home anymore because all I did was cried and thought about him and trying to push everybody away from me. And I decided that I needed to go back to work. So I went back to work and bosses weren't real thrilled about me coming back to work at first. They thought it was too soon, but I needed to be doing something besides sitting and thinking. One of my first runs when I went back there, we were called to a home, uh, unresponsive, and we get in this house and he's 27 years old. He's blonde, he's about the size of Josh, and he's laying in a closet and he's about dead, overdose. All I could do was give him Narcan and oxygen and take him to the hospital. And I knew there was more that I could do because I I literally froze when we got there and my partner at the time kind of yelled at me and he said, Trish, you've got to think about this. And he said, come on. And so when I really came to myself, there's more I could do. And I knew that. But as an EMT, I couldn't. I needed to go to a higher level of care so that I could help people like that because my thought was if someone had maybe been there with my son that had a higher level of care, maybe they could have helped him, which I found out later it wasn't true, but I needed to do more. And I needed to do what my son would expect me to do because I was the strong mother and 
he always expected me to take care of things and you know mommy can take care of everything well paramedics could take care of more than an emt and i thank god for emts you know they're they're our backbone uh they're there to help us i needed to be able to do more i wanted to be able to make sure that anybody that needed help if there was anything within me that i knew how to do it that i was going to be able to do it what are you trained to do now as a paramedic that you were not yet trained to do as an EMT? I can intubate. I can defibrillate a patient. I can give heart medications if their heart stops. So I can give epi, atropine, dopamine, anything that can be a life-saving procedure. I can do it in the back of the ambulance, you know, needle crikes, anything that needs to be done we can do that. So, you know, I felt like I needed to do more. You arrive on scene and you see someone who is overdosing on opioids. What are the symptoms? What do you see? Lifeless respiratory drive has been knocked out. They're breathing four to eight times a minute. Pupils are very constricted, pinpoints. Sometimes they're very sweaty, which we call diaphoretic. Their skin's cold, they're clammy, pale. And then what do you do? What's the treatment you administer? The first thing we would do would be to take care of their airway. We'd breathe for them, put a bag valve mask on them. While we're getting Narcan ready, we have nasal Narcan. We also have IV Narcan, but we would give them nasal Narcan, keep bagging them, check their pulse, make sure they have a pulse. You know, most of the time they're bradycardic, uh, slow heart rate. So we work on that to make sure they're breathing because as you know as long as we're getting air in them and getting narcan in them there's a good chance that we're going to bring them back around but i've seen them not breathing and we but have a heart rate give them narcan and breathe for them and in a couple minutes they just wake up but the amount of narcan that it is now taking to get somebody to even breathe on their own it's crazy when I started EMS, 0.4 milligrams of Narcan, you could get somebody to come back around. And now we're going upwards of 24, 30, 34 milligrams to Narcan just to get them to breathe. It's changed so much. It takes that much just to knock the opioid out of the opioid receptors in their brain and central nervous system and create essentially the reversal of the overdose, yes. right? Yes. And, you know, and then they wake up and don't want to go to the hospital and you explain to them, you know, Narcan's only going to work for maybe up to 90 minutes, maybe two hours. But beyond that, if you still have enough of that in your system, you're going to overdose again and you could still die. And some of them still refuse, you know, they'll refuse to go to the hospital. Do I understand that you have a picture of Josh? that you keep in your ambulance at all times? I have Joshua's driver's license. I have his class ring. I carry him in my purse. And I tell everybody all the time, I don't just take God with me, I take Josh with me. Most of my overdose patients, when they've woken up, I show them his picture and uh, I tell them about him. And then I tell them he's dead. And this is what's gonna happen to them. You know, your family will suffer, you know, my family lives with this every day and it's never stopped and it never will. And some of them have gotten help. Some of them don't, you know, they ignore you, but 
majority of the time they cry. They tell me how sorry they are. And I always let them know I'm telling them this because I care. And a lot of them, that's all they need. They need to know that somebody cares. I saw a guy that had overdosed on my, he had overdosed about four years ago and I had him on the ambulance. And I saw him about three months ago, didn't recognize him, was in the store. And he walked over to me and he said, do you remember me? And I said, no, I don't. I said, sorry. And he said, I was on your ambulance. He said, I'd overdosed. And he said, you were talking to me about your son on the way to the hospital. And he said, I've been clean for two years. And he said, I owe that to you. My son's life meant everything to me, but because I told him my son's story, got them clean means everything to me too. That's the reason why we do what we do. That's why I do what I do. Do you have relationships with the families of people who you have saved from overdose? Yes, mothers. My husband, several months ago, had an overdose and the young man, when he got there, he was dead. And uh, the mother, I'd only met her maybe once or twice, but I immediately, I sent her a message on Facebook, uh, told her who I was. And I talked to her, just sent her a message and told her I knew words couldn't help, but to know that if she needed me, I gave her my cell phone number and told her to call me anytime. If she just needed to vent, if she needed a shoulder to lean on, a shoulder to cry on. I told her that if she needed to scream, yell, throw things, that's how you work through this. And she called me immediately and thanked me and uh, told me that she would be in touch, that everything I said to her was exactly how she was feeling. She told me she would keep in touch and I check on them. You know, it's not just her. There's been several. I always check on them. I always send them a message because, you know, Lee County is so small and a lot of the people over the last 13 years, I've come to know them. I've come to know their families. I mean, they're my family. You know, I may, it may be because I work on the ambulance, but they're still mine, you know, and I worry about them. Trish, the statistics don't lie. The opioid epidemic is getting worse. More people are dying each year from drug overdoses, mostly to opioids and mostly specifically to illicit fentanyl uh, than the year before. That over the last year, over 105,000 Americans died of accidental overdoses, mostly to opioids and among those mostly to illicit fentanyl. Do you ever feel like the problem is just too big and that for everything you're doing, it's a war we can't win? Or do you feel otherwise? I feel otherwise. I think that we have to educate the communities. And, you know, they don't know the stories. They don't understand the addiction, how this can happen. But, you know, you don't know that that person that is addicted wasn't like you to begin with. You know, they could have had the home and the family and it just takes one thing to happen that sends them into a whirlwind, into a traumatic spin and they're on the street or they're still at home and they can't deal with it. So they become addicted and we have to educate people. And we're trying to do that in Lee County and let people know that 
there is hope. There's somebody out there that cares. There's somebody that will get you into rehab. We have peer support counselors that are doing those things. And we have a quick response team that goes to these, some of these people that overdose, they will agree to let somebody come and talk to them to get them into rehab. And I mean, we're doing that. Anything that's worth fighting for, anything worth having, it's worth doing something about. Basically, if you can save anyone, anything that you can do, you got to do what you have to do. You can't save everybody, but you can save one or two or three. Why are you so sure of that? Because it's been done. If we save one, if we save two, if we save three, that's, that's that many families that don't have to suffer. It's that many mothers that don't have to lay in bed at night and cry because she's buried her child. Or it's not someone's child that's having to bury their mother or father, you know, a brother or a sister. We see that so often, you know, it just, if we save one, it's better than not saving any. We have to educate, you know, we got to get into the schools. It's not just happening in high schools. It's happening in middle schools. It's happening in elementary schools. And we have to not educate just the children, but we have to educate the parents on how you talk to your children about this and what the dangers of it is. Education is everything. You have to educate people. There's nothing that I've ever been through that's more painful than the death of my child. And yes, I'm on a mission. I, I want to help people. I want them to get clean. I want them to know that there's something better out there for them. And there's somebody here that's willing to help you and tell you that they care. In your experience, what is the most effective way to support a person who you understand is suffering from opioid addiction? Listen, be there if they need you. Tell them the options that are available, the treatment that you can help them get. You don't have to be their best friend, but let them know you care because a lot of them have nobody to care for them. For families suffering by virtue of the fact that somebody in their inner circle, somebody they love is suffering from opioid addiction. What's the best way to support a family grappling with that disease in their family? Tell them not to ever give up. I never gave up on Josh, never. They can't give up. Don't enable them, but don't give up on them. And no matter what they say to you, let them know that you love them and you will help them in any way you can but you have to, you have to care. If you don't care, they care even less. So, you know, don't ever give up on that person that you love that is the addict. Don't ever give up on them. It's not hopeless. No, it's not. Trisha, on this show, we are just in awe of you. Your ability to heal, your generous spirit, your skill, your strength, and you're too humble to admit that you're amazing, but you are. And I just cannot thank you enough for sharing with us what you have shared today. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. You're so welcome. Thank you all for having me. Thank you to my guest, Patricia Cole. And to my listeners, thank you for tuning in to the season finale of Outside Council. I am grateful to all of our guests who have shared their experiences as we explored the origins and dimensions of the opioid epidemic in America. For me, 
combating the opioid epidemic is not just a trial case or public advocacy, although those things are important. It has become a true calling that I am privileged to serve. If you have any questions for me or would like to see a topic covered on a future episode of Outside Counsel, please connect with me on Twitter at Jeffrey B. Simon or through my website at www.jeffreybsimon.com. I would love to hear from you. If you or someone you know is struggling with opioids, please visit www.addictioncenter.com to learn more about the available resources in your community. This podcast is produced by Shannon McNeese of Revel and Convey and Larry Shivana. The opinions expressed on outside counsel are neither legal nor medical advice. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers, guests, experts, and or hosts. They do not expressly nor necessarily reflect the opinion of any institution with which I am or ever have been a member and should never be attributed as such. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Outside Counsel. I'm Jeffrey B. Simon.